Hey, welcome to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast on anything and everything adoption related. In this episode, we sit down with Jaron Kim, who we were very lucky to catch right after the ICA gathering. Jaron is a social worker, writer, teacher, and scholar. Her involvement in the adoptee activist community began with her well-known blog, Harlow's Monkey, an unapologetic look at transracial and transnational adoption, which has been running for 13 years strong. We talk about how Jaron first got into social work, her current projects, including research on adoptees as parents, research ethics, and blogging. She also shares how she talked to her kids about adoption as they were growing up, which may have involved some critical analyses of Disney film narratives and the musical Annie. Also, listen till the end to hear Hannah's pro tip for a quick and foolproof way to learn to love kimchi. I guess I can introduce myself and then if you oh, feel like I've forgotten anything that you think <laughs> I should have said. Um, so do you want me to start with my name and yeah, that yeah, basic yeah, sure. stuff? Okay, so I'm Jaron Kim. Um, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Washington, Tacoma. And um, I've been there for about four years. Um, I was adopted to Minnesota in 1971 and lived most of my time in Minnesota. So I've only been in Washington State for about four years. And it's been an interesting transition because there's such a huge Korean adoptee community in Minnesota. Um, Not as big of a community in Washington State, um, but I have been getting involved a little bit with the Asian Adult Adoptees of Washington. Um, And so they definitely um, have been part of, they were part of the reason why I was interested in moving to Washington State because I didn't want to go someplace where I knew there wasn't going to be some kind of a Korean community. Korean adoptee community specifically. And so, let's see, I'm a social work professor and um, I do research on mostly child welfare adoptions, um, but not just inter-country adoptions. I also do research on foster care adoption in the United States, and I'm also really interested in disabilities. So really what I'm trying to do is converge um, my research related to how disabilities and race and gender intersect in adoption and and permanency, as we call it, um, in the United States. And so permanency is kind of like just this larger goal of when a child is in out-of-home care, either going back to their... um, families of origin or a legal guardianship of some sort or adoption. So permanency in the U.S. child welfare context is really broader than what we sometimes think of it, which is just adoption. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was kind of interested, on your website, you do describe yourself as a late bloomer because you discovered social work, you came to social work um, in your 30s. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just curious, what were you doing before social work? What prompted the change? What was I doing? What wasn't I doing before then? Um, (laughs) I used to call myself a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. um, Because, um, so, like, I, when I graduated from high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And it took me, I don't know, three different schools and 15 years to finish my undergraduate degree. Um, I originally started out in um, design. I was doing apparel design, <laughs> apparel design and manufacturing, and so like my friends who know me, I do a lot of knitting and sewing, and that's where that comes from. Is that my background is is in um, knitting, weaving, and textile design. Um, so I did that for a while, and I thought that's what I was going to do. But um, when I was 24, I got pregnant with my daughter, and um, I thought, well, I'll finish out 
I'm going to take a break and I had one more semester left and I never went back. So that break ended up being, you know, like, I don't know, 10 years, something like that, a long time. <laughs> In the meantime, I was doing stuff like I was working as a tailor, I was writing a column on uh, about parenting on an early, uh, like, internet um, news site that was syndicated for a while. I was doing all kinds of weird, odd, goofy things. Yeah. Um, and I was volunteering, and so the volunteering is what got me into social work. I was working for... So I was adopted through Children's Home Society, which partnered with Holt in Oregon, and then Holt, back then, this was in the early 70s, when Holt and Children's Home were together. Now Children's Home has been working with, I think, Eastern Social Welfare for a number of years, but I was still um, old enough that I was a Holt baby, um, or child, uh, wasn't a baby. Um, but I got interested. Someone told me that Children's Home Society was looking for volunteers for a program where they were looking for mentors for young moms who are at risk of being involved in child protection. And it was just one of those things that I thought was really interesting because I had two young kids at home and it was something I could do with them because what they wanted us to do is get together and it was a high mentoring um, contact. Like sometimes they're like, you know, like big brothers, big sisters might be you meet once a month. We were supposed to meet once a week. And so I would meet with this young mom. She was a 14-year-old. At the time, she got pregnant 15 when I met her. And she had a, a daughter that was about my son's age. And we would get together once a week. And we would go to the park with the kids. And it was mostly about me supporting her um, since she was kind of in a high risk for child uh, welfare involvement. Um, and then also role modeling, parenting. Yeah. So I did that for a couple of years. And Children's Home Society also had another program called the M&M program, which is Mentors and Mentees, and it was their inter-country adoptee mentoring program. And so I didn't even, I mean, I knew it existed, but I wasn't involved in that at all. And the director of volunteer services asked me if I would switch programs once my young mom that I was working with had graduated from high school. She asked if I would switch programs because there were a number of um, Asian adoptees there that had more significant um, challenges and because I'd been working in this other program she thought that maybe um, I would have a because it, the M&M program a lot of it was like you know you, may, you go to a movie with your mentee or you'd go out for ice cream or you'd get a pizza or something like that but um, because these adoptees were struggling with clinical depression and anxiety and um, substance use issues they wanted somebody that had more experience working with kind of a more difficult population. Right. And so because I'd been working with these young moms, they asked me to switch over. So I, I did. So I kind of bounced back and forth between these two programs for a number of years. And then at one point, the director of volunteer services said, you know, have you ever considered going into social work? And yeah. I didn't even know what social work was. So yeah. I was like, I've never even considered it. And at that point, I still didn't have my undergraduate degree. I hadn't graduated yet with, with my bachelor's. So I started looking at programs and found one that I thought was a really great program. It was small, but all of the faculty were um, people of color. Yeah. And wow. it was a really small cohort, and it was the perfect fit for me. So I went back to school, and I got my social work degree. And that was 30... Three, I think, when I started doing my pre-recs for wow. that program, and wow. it took me a couple of years to get through. Yeah. So, yeah, like 35 before I finished my undergraduate degree in social work. So you had never considered social work. You didn't even know what it was. Right. 
I didn't even know what it was. I knew what psychology was, but I didn't really know what social work was. I'm really... I don't know about you guys. (laughs) I'm really touched by that story because I feel like there are a lot of people out there, like, adopted or not, that also feel a bit lost, like, career-wise, and you also feel like a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Mm -hmm. And then... Yeah, and then just you just kind of gradually were led to this thing where that was kind of a perfect fit. Like now, I, like I guess at this point, do you really feel like this is what you were meant to do? Absolutely. And so the, the metaphor that I often use when, when I talk about this part of my life is, you know, it's, it's like doors, opening doors. So before, I felt like I was always like trying to open doors, but you know how sometimes... Yeah. You know, the doors are really heavy and it feels like you're pulling them and you can't keep them open and you have to kind of squeeze through. Once I found social work, I felt like they were like sliding glass doors. So I just walk up and and it was like opportunities were just like, come in, we have things for you to do. Wow, an automatic (laughs) door. Like like an automatic door that just opened up and they were like, yes, there's all these things that you can do now. And I, I was also really lucky because I had a professor in my undergraduate social work program who was a black foster care transracial adoptee. Wow. And, you know, when we think about modeling, that was so significant for me. So, yeah, you know, he was teaching our development class, our human behavior in the social environment and child development class. And, you know, he was talking about the impact of adoption. Yeah. on child development, which I can't imagine other, but only he could do that because most most people wouldn't consider that. Or they might talk about it very briefly or yeah. at a very high level, but if you're not an adoptee, I don't think you would necessarily bring it up. Exactly. Because when I did my master's program and I took the master's level version of that same class, it wasn't ever mentioned at all. And I really think it was because I had this professor who was a transracial adoptee. And he also knew adoption policy. So then he would talk about, in, in other classes I was in, he would talk about adoption policies. And then when um, we have to do our internships for social work, you know, he was able to help me, you know, think about which internship placements that I wanted. Because I had decided at that point I really wanted to learn as much as I could about the adoption industry and the adoption system. Yeah. And it was really kind of a way for me to understand, like, how could I, as a Korean adoptee, have ended up in Minnesota? Yeah. You know, like, it wasn't just, you know, the narratives are, you know, like, lots of parents, you know, especially back in the early 70s when I was adopted, it was probably they saw some movie or they saw some news article or they knew somebody else who had adopted, and that was oftentimes the reasons why. But um, it's obviously not that easy. Right there's on the U.S. side there's the home study process and why do you choose a domestic versus a international and why Korea versus Vietnam or other countries and then in Korea there's you know all the the different facets that um, you know like why don't they have a good child welfare system here and so mm-hmm. why orphanages and why did they switch from orphanages to foster care and what were the laws that made it you know um, and I wanted to understand that because I right. felt like it was so hard to understand. Yeah. You know, just asking people questions, most people only know their little tiny slice of it. They don't see the bigger picture or the bigger system. And right. I wanted to better understand the larger system. Yeah. And the other thing I learned in my social work classes, and I think because I had all 
social work professors who were people of color. You know, they were Hmong, they were Latinx, they were African American, um, and they were um, First Nations. So I think because all of my professors were um, people of color, the way they talked about different issues also helped me understand that the Korean adoption experience was connected to all these other larger experiences. So I learned about boarding schools, Native American boarding schools, and mm -hmm. the Indian Adoption Project, which was a very specific, um, intentional transracial adoption program just for Native American children that operated not that long, but in, in the 50s and 60s. I mean, it purposely taking Native American kids and putting them in white adoptive parents, their families. Like our stolen generation. But, right, right. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. It was intentional and um, and had I not known about orphan trains and boarding schools and the Indian Adoption Project mm -hmm. and then just like further elaborating on the history in the United States of separating black children from their parents. Yeah. Right? If I hadn't learned those things from these professors, I couldn't have understood, I don't think to the same degree, my own experience as an international adopt adoptee. Right. So there's some uniqueness about being inter-country adoption, but it's still some of the larger, same, broader themes about assimilation and about who gets to be a parent and what kind yes. of criteria do we decide is, um, is good for, uh, like some parents we value more than other types of parents. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so I wanted to be a parent. Yeah, I yeah. wanted to understand all of that better so I could understand my own context better. That sounds like an amazing program, an amazing environment. And I, actually I was thinking because I did um a four year undergraduate psychology sequence and it only touches on adoption and like linking adoption say to attachment. I don't know, for five minutes maybe in four years. Like yeah, and that was, wasn't that long ago. So I also benefited in my social work program at my master's level of being what um, we call the Title IV-E, Child Welfare Scholar. And Title IV-E is part of the Social Security Act, and it's where federal funding comes through to help support children who are in the public child welfare system in the United States. So it's about reimbursements. And one aspect of it in the Title IV-E is to reimburse students who are going to go into the social work programs and become child welfare workers. Mm -hmm. And so as part of your tuition offset, then you pay back by working in public child welfare for a couple of years. So I did that in my master's program. And um, again, it was one of those things where I really wanted to better understand the system and to know kind of like what were the decisions that were being made at these different points and to kind of see um, all of all of these connections kind of come together and again it was really helpful to have this professor who then continued to help mentor me um, so that I could you know understand that and he would give me all kinds of resources and help me kind of think about what the literature would say and the research on it so it was super wow. impactful for me yeah do you still I, have a quite really like a close relationship with, with oh this yeah I do now. yeah wow. yeah special yeah, yeah. I'm kind of curious uh, at what point you started blogging was so that was you started your blog Harley's Monkey in 2006 mm -hmm. I'd actually started it in 2004 okay. um, kind of under a different name and in a different I was using um, I think I was using blogger first as a platform before it and then I moved to movable type and then I moved to WordPress so it's it's moved around but for a couple of years it was really private and I didn't blog a whole lot, and then I kind of deleted it, and then restarted it again in 2006. 
um, which was right around the time I was finishing up my master's degree in social work. Okay. Um, and I was working in public child welfare, and I was... Was that intense? It was intense. Yeah. And, and so blogging was my way of trying to understand, again, um, what I was experiencing. Mm. And it was a way for me to kind of put my thoughts out and to voice my questions and my concerns and my observations about adoption in in a little bit of a different way. So it was it was kind of a hybrid. Sometimes I would write really personal blog posts and sometimes I'd write more academic blog posts. Um, I mean, not academic in terms of research like I'm doing now, but because I was still like just finishing up my master's program and, um, and working there. Um, so oftentimes it was about a critique of the system. Mm. And it was interesting because when I started my job at that county where I was working in public child welfare, I did let all of my directors know that I was writing this blog. Yeah. Um, because I didn't want them to feel like it was a conflict of interest. And they said, as long as you're not talking about any of your cases and you're not naming names and, you know, like if you're just talking about observations, um, as long as it doesn't reflect badly on, you know, our agency, that's that's okay. And so I, I felt like I was actually given permission. I don't think that they knew or understood blogs, honestly. I don't think that they had any idea yeah, what yeah. I was doing. <laughs> you were kind of an early adopter, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was, yeah, yeah. Um, because I like storytelling and because I um, was meeting other adoptees through their blogs. Yeah. And so there was a group of us that were kind of connected through our blogs, and I felt like our blogs in some ways were um, having conversations with each other, kind of like what you're wow. doing in this podcast. Yeah. Um, because we didn't all live in the same area. We lived all, all over the United States and in some cases around the world. And there were Vietnamese adoptees um, and adoptees that were living in Hawaii and adoptees that were living like all over the place that we were having different conversations and sharing similar experiences, um, but through our blogs. And so mm-hmm. we would comment on each other's blog posts and we would also write, you know, blog posts specifically addressing things that we, you know, somebody else is writing about and saying I agree or I might disagree and so yeah the blog was a really fruitful um, and generative time for me. Can I ask how I guess the the feedback to your blog has maybe shifted since then if at all? Um, Well because I haven't blogged in as much of a conversational style as I used to so for a number of years I was blogging probably three or four times a week. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. If you go back and really through the archives, the old ones, I was blogging a lot. And um, I just had so much on my mind. I was thinking about adoption so much. Um, and it kind of coincided right after I had come back from Korea. The other thing maybe to mention is that when I first started the blog, I was anonymous. So mm-hmm. I didn't have my name out there at all. Right. Mm-hmm. And my husband was the one who actually helped me come up with the name Harlow's Monkey for my blog, um, so that was my moniker, so I could hmm. be Harlow's Monkey instead of J. Ron Kim yeah. um, as a self-protective measure for myself. Um, but then eventually I realized that enough people knew who I was, so I stopped making it um, anonymous. But originally it was mostly other adoptees. Like I said, we were having these conversations with each other, and so the comments were mostly from other adoptees. 
as people started finding out about the blog, adoptive parents started coming. And mm-hmm. so I would get a lot of adoptive parents who would comment too. And that was always a real mix, you know? So I got, I got some really negative feedback. People would email me, but they would also leave comments. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd already been working a lot with adoptive parents at that point, so I can't say that any of it was actually really surprising. Right. Um, um, but I also found that there were a lot of adoptive parents who were real allies who really wanted to better understand, and um, and so I think that it was useful too. Mm-hmm. But it's always been my intention that the blog was written for adoptees and that professionals and adoptive parents, I mean, I in one of my earlier blog posts, I basically said, you're welcome to come here, but this is our sandbox. This isn't for you. So, like, um, yeah. you have to be respectful to the other adoptees who might be commenting and, um, like, glad if you learn something, but it's not about you. Yeah. It's about adoptees talking to each other. I'm just wondering, like, if you look back over, you know, almost 15 years of blogging, I guess, um, like, what do you think are the main things that you've gained from it? I guess you've, you've mentioned that it um, helped you form these connections with adoptees, like, all over the world, and I guess I guess it helped you, like, clarify your, your views. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you just yeah. started. <laughs> Sorry, that's not a good question. No, it's a good, it's a good summary. I would say those are exactly like the two biggest things that blogging has done for me. It's connected me to other people, and it's also helped me clarify um, my thoughts and positions. And you can see if you go back and look through, not that I would suggest you do it because there's so much content on there, but I've changed my position on a few things over time, Mm. which I think is also interesting. Mm. You know, so if you look back at things I wrote in 2007 or 2008 and you asked me now, I might have a very different perspective on it. Yeah. But I feel like it's kind of a living... uh, you know, testimony to who I am and how people can change and how your thoughts can evolve over time and that anybody's can and probably will. So, you know, because I wasn't a researcher at the time Um, I started the blog. I was thought I would just work in adoption practice for a while. I had no idea at the time that I was actually going to go back and do a PhD. So that was really helpful for me to blog because I learned how to write and I learned how to talk about my ideas. And I think that was helpful for me when I did go on to do a PhD. Mm. I'm just curious. So your husband came up with the, with the name Harley's yeah. Monkey. Yeah. Is he also like a researcher or no. like a social worker? No. Or? no, it's because I was talking to him about the Harry Harlow and the monkey experiments that were done in, um, you know, in the United States that for a lot of, um, I mean, I think maybe not necessarily super consciously but really informed this idea about like parenting and the importance of nature and nurture Mm. um you know so if you know about the monkey experiment right so but um so I always kind of joked with him that I felt and of course I didn't I didn't know this until I went back to social work school right. and started taking psychology and social work courses about Harlow's monkeys. I didn't know anything about it because um, when you're in design classes, you're not learning psychology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I first read about it, I was like, holy crap, <laughs> yeah. that's like us being adoptees. Like, but I felt like, like, like as an adoptee, I intuitively understood that what they were doing was like, 
me being a baby monkey being taken from one mother and then seeing like well let's see how you do with this one yeah and um but I was trying to have conversations with people about that and other people were kind of like eh, I, yeah okay maybe um but when I was telling my husband about it he was like oh yeah I totally see that and so when I was thinking about doing um, a blog, and I said, but I want to be anonymous, he's like, well, why don't you name it Harlow's Monkey? And I was like, oh, that's perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Before we talk about some of your recent research, I'm also curious, what prompted the PhD? Um, I was working in child welfare, and I was working on the adoption part of it. So these were all kids who had already had um, termination of parental rights. So their their families of origin um, no longer had any legal claim to them, and so they were quote unquote free for adoption. Mm -hmm. I hate that terminology, um, but they were legally available to be adopted, and that was our goal as child welfare workers. So my goal was to find adoptive homes for these youth on my caseload. Um, I had a lot of concerns about child welfare practice. Like, I, just being curious and having finished a master's degree, so I was at least somewhat familiar with looking for research and hmm. evidence to back up interventions. That's, that's a big part of the social work program. I didn't really think that there was research backing up. That I didn't think that there was evidence that showed the practices that we were doing in ad adoption had any substantial basis. <laughs> like I was, I was really concerned that people were just practicing based on emotion and based on what they thought would work, um, that there wasn't really good solid evidence that said, yes, we should be doing this or that because the evidence says these things work or these things don't work. Um, I felt like we were still practicing based on old social work, progressive era morals and values, mm -hmm. which is like, wealthy families especially if you're white and protestant are always the best families and that everybody else is you know a little bit suspect and um that material possessions were always better for kids than even like if a fam a poor family who may have really loved and was able to care for their child in other ways right i felt like we were still basing it on these um, ideas of rescue and um saving kids um and yes of course like abuse is there too, but so often kids initially come into the child welfare system because of um, issues around neglect actually more than than abuse, and the neglect oftentimes can be tied to poverty issues. Yeah. So, um, like something like poor supervision, like a child being left alone mm -hmm. for periods of time, sometimes it's because parents can't find daycare, and that's because they can't afford daycare because they're working, and you know. So yeah. anyway, um, so. I started looking at research because I still had access, you know, to this, and um, I was really underwhelmed by the research, especially the research that looked at adoptee outcomes. Uh, most of them are focused just on children, and they looked at mm. children for a certain time period and maybe adolescence. But back, I mean, back in 2006, there wasn't even a whole lot on adult adoptees. It was still focused maybe on adolescence, um, and a lot of it was focused on racial identity. But it wasn't necessarily looking at other things that I thought were really important. Um, and there was an assumption that adoptive families were always better. And that, um, yes, there may be some kids who struggle and challenge, but they were always going to be related to um, their pre-adoptive experiences. So trauma from yeah. their birth families. Um, 
but most people didn't see adoption itself as being a trauma um, or like the idea that if you are in foster care, let's say you're in a long-term foster care placement with people that have been caring for you and love you for a long time, but foster care is not the goal. The goal is adoption. Yeah. So we move you from a foster family that you've been with for five years into a brand new adoptive home where you don't know anybody. Um, that's traumatic for a child, even if it's quote unquote better in the eyes of the state, you know. And we weren't looking at that. Nobody was looking at that. They were just yeah. making assumptions that, of course, adoption is always going to be in the best interest of the child. No one asks the child what's in their best interest or really considers that either. And so anyway, those are just some of the many reasons why I wanted to go back and look at research because I felt like sometimes it would ask kids questions and I was really suspect of their answers in this research because, you know, if you're asking an eight-year-old how they feel about their racial identity and, um, you know, what do eight-year-olds know? Like, yeah. I'm like, ask an eight-year-old when they're 38 about yeah. their racial identity. Like, that's when they're not living with their parents and their parents aren't kind of directing what their racial identity is going mm. to look like because it happens so differently once you leave your family home. You know, when you go off to college or if you get a job or move to another state or another country, you're developing your racial identity, your sense of who you are in a very different way than you are when you're at home and your parents are like, aren't you proud to be Korean? We're going to go to Korean school. It's like, sure, they may be really proud of it, but what happens when you go off to college or you're 25 and you're starting to navigate those relationships of being a Korean person, Yeah. right, or part of the Korean diaspora at that point, um, we're not asking people at those points, or what does it mean if you become a parent? How does that change your identity? Do you still feel Korean if you are in a you know interracial relationship and your partner looks different than you and your child looks more like your white partner or your black partner? Do you feel like I'm less Korean now because my kid doesn't look like me? Right? All these uh. different things as adults change those things, and we weren't asking those questions. No one asks those questions because most of it, the research is trying to help adoptive parents do better. Yeah. raising their kids and they're yeah. and they're not looking at these longer term things right yeah so yeah I was just I was kind of disappointed in the research so we were both really impressed by your keynote address at the recent um, fifth international research symposium on Korean adoption studies at the gathering um, and so both of those studies are looking at adult intercountry transracial adoptees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, transnational. Mm -hmm. um, I think they're both just really kind of like really impactful research studies and things that are definitely important to, to the adult adoptee community. Um, so the first one is looking at Korean transnational adoptees as parents. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, because you're also a parent, mm -hmm. I guess, does, does your personal experience sometimes inform that research? And also, were you particularly surprised by any of the themes that emerged from that study? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yes, my personal experience always informs everything that I do. I think it does for everybody. Oh, that's, I'm, well, I'm kind of relieved to hear you say that because, you know, some, I think, if you, I feel like some adoptee researchers are very strict about, I don't know, like, uh, delineating. Yeah. Well, 
um, how can how can your own experiences not affect the lens you know that you have in seeing the, the world like it informs how you ask questions and it informs you like I feel like being a Korean adoptee when I was looking at these other research studies yeah. um, I could tell certain things were missing right like there are some questions I was like sure that makes sense that you're asking these questions but here are some other questions you might be missing because if you're not an adoptee you wouldn't think to ask those questions Right? So part of being an adoptee researcher is I'm hoping that I'm able to ask some questions that other people may have missed, not because they were intentional about it, but just because they don't have that experience. Yeah. And um, I don't believe that research is ever objective entirely. I think that you work hard to make sure that you're being fair and balanced and accurate in your research, which means sometimes you have to ask other people, am I interpreting this the right way? Am I being biased in the way I'm looking at this? I mean. As a good researcher, you put in mechanisms so that you can reduce the biases that you have. But you absolutely, we all have biases. Yeah. And I don't know how anyone uh, honestly could could say they're not because we all have certain ways of looking at things, right? Um, everything yeah. is subjective, including research. So we work hard to try and be fair and transparent and accurate about it. But yeah. that's not the same thing as saying that everything is objective. Yeah. I, th I guess it's just like, um, I think some adult adoptive scholars, um, I don't know, like I guess really want to be um, respected like entirely as, as academics and researchers and just want to... Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Like um, I, I've just read a few, like I heard a few public statements like that from from other adoptee researchers that just want to, um, that their, their personal experience is like not at all relevant or that, um, you mean that they're first and foremost a researcher and then like, like kind of second an adult adopted person or something. I wonder if that's about like whether or not their research should be evaluated as good research as opposed to simply reflecting their personal experience because I think that that's well yeah I think I gets, think with adoptees you know, we often get accused of doing me search yeah. um, instead of research mm -hmm. um, I question that all the time though because if I go to conferences and presentations and I hear somebody talk about like I do cancer research sometimes the reason why they do cancer research is because they had a family member who had cancer and so they wanted to understand cancer more they wanted to understand treatments or they wanted to understand the experience of what it's like to live with cancer no one accuses them of doing research you know so I feel yeah. like it's a it's a thing that's targeted towards people of color and adoptees that mm -hmm. we're doing um, we're just doing our own personal research because you know, we want to validate our own experiences. And so yeah. I think that's where being like really um, sure that you have these mechanisms in place to make sure that you're fair and balanced and, and um, other people can look at your research and say, yes, your methodology looks good. Um, your questions are reasonable or in your analysis, like have you considered these things is important to do because sure, we can miss things and it's important to get other perspectives too. But like so many adoptive parents do research and people don't accuse them of doing research, yeah. but they often ask questions that are trying to also validate their experiences, right? And hopefully the good ones are also having other people look at their research and make sure that they're also doing a fair, balanced yeah, job totally. as well. Yeah. I mean, that's any researcher's job should do that. That's why we hopefully go through the peer review process when we publish, you know, so that we're not just making things up, otherwise it would just be opinion, mm. yeah.
I think that a lot of adoptees who do research um, avoid talking about their positionality or want to distance themselves because of those accusations that we're doing, just personal research on ourselves, this research. Yeah. Um, and it's unfair that they would have to be scrutinized in that way that other people don't. Mm. Um, so I think that that is probably more likely why they, they have those stances, not because they really um, don't want to be seen as an adoptee, but because it's hard out there when, you know, yeah. the larger dominant narrative you know is, is like adoptees can't do anything objectively because that's kind of the dominant narrative yeah is that yeah. We, we're not objective I mean I had a social worker once tell me that because I was an adoptee didn't make me an expert on adoption and I was like uh, yeah actually, actually it does <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah I mean and and it's not just because I have my own personal experience but I've been in adoptee spaces and communities for many many years so I yeah. I mean and I also think that's another reason why I was interested in doing research too is because I would hear all these people talk about their experiences so like at the symposium when I was talking about hearing from adoptees that they had not stayed with their adoptive family, said it wasn't the quote-unquote forever home for forever family. Um, so I knew that adoptees were going into the system um, from other adoptees. And then when I worked in child welfare, I saw ado intercountry adoptees come into the system. And yet there was no research about it. Mm. There's no research that looks at intercountry adoptees and kind of the stability in their adoptive homes. There's yeah. nothing that looked at um, abuse. There's nothing that looked at whether or not adoptive parents kick out their kick their kids out of the house, right? I mean, um, I just, these are all things that I think until adoptees oftentimes raise the questions, nobody else is saying, oh yeah, we should do a study on that. So people would tell me these things and I would talk about it and social workers or other researchers would say, well, but there's no research on that. What evidence is there to support that? Yeah. You know, so I was like, well, okay, so we need to do more research and we need to ask some of these questions. Um, but if we stop asking any questions about, of adoptees past the time they're like 18, then we're never gonna know. Like we're, we're really yeah. ready to do, we should do a study on being a Korean adoptee and being a grandparent. Yeah. You know, because there are Korean adoptees who are grandparents. So I had, I, I remember one um, adoptee who was uh, multiracial, so one white parent, um, she's an older adoptee, and then um, she married somebody who was white. And so their children were, I guess, like, I hate to use this kind of terminology, but like a quarter Korean. Right. Right. And then their children married white people. And so, so one of the things she was saying is like with every generation, the Korean is disappearing. Mm -mm. Right. So, I mean, like that was really striking to me. That was a statement that I just, that really felt heavy to me. Yeah. We talk about it in these groups as adoptees, but I don't think anybody else ever thinks about that, what, what that's like, you know? And so when you feel like you're working so hard to maintain some kind of an identity as a Korean, and then you see, like, your grandchildren and there's nothing recognizably Korean about them, do they identify as being Korean, right? It feels like one more loss that we might have. Yes. I think yeah. about that a lot with, the, like, the queer communities, the queer community of adoptees who, if they have 
children are not likely to have biological children and therefore will be parents of potentially white kids. Yeah. And what happens then? What happens then, right? Yeah. I mean, we know that family isn't just all about biology, right? I mean, because we grew up in families where we weren't biologically connected you know, yeah. to our families. Um, so, I mean, we understand flexible kinship, um, but there is something about not ever having something and then feeling like your ability to even hold on to that little bit is being kind of taken away from you. Before we go to the second study, I was mm. interested in um, something that you mentioned in the first study in, in your um, paper, and it was something about culture work. I guess I'm using that socialization, that's how I it, but um, the work that it entails to to maintain or explore one's cultural yeah. traditions or roots or whatever, and how. I think one of your participants was doing that with their child, right. which I thought was really beautiful. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that, because I think I'd never heard of it in terms of work or labor, and I think that's it's a really interesting concept. Right. Well, um, because it doesn't, it's not natural for us. We are not raised in, in these culture, and a lot of our parents, even the ones who tried really hard to bring us to culture camps or to expose us to um, you know, Korean food or other aspects of our Korean heritage, um, we don't grow up with it all the time, so you know, most of us don't grow up speaking the language unless we had Korean parents. So when we have kids and trying to think, like, how am I going to socialize them so that they feel a sense of pride in being Korean, too, is really difficult because we don't have any of that. And oftentimes, actually, what I would, was hearing in these interviews is I didn't actually even really think about being a Korean adoptee that much or exploring my Korean heritage until I had kids. And yeah. then I wanted to do it partly for them, but I realized like I had to do it with them because I had nothing to teach them <laughs> yeah. on my own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of actually um, Nicole Chung's memoir, oh, wow. uh, how she talks about like um, her, her daughter was like, really eager to learn Korean, but because you know she wasn't fluent in Korean herself, it's like they were kind of learning together and I, I mean I imagine as, well what struck me I guess just my reading of, of the memoir was that that must feel a little pressured you know like when your child's like oh why can't you teach me Korean like I, I want to let you know your child's really enthusiastic which is great but I don't know it just it just I guess makes you realize how little you know sometimes yeah. and uh, well um being a parent is like realizing how incompetent you are every day of your life. Like, all the ways you're failing your kids. It's hard. Parenting is really hard, right? And so you're trying so hard to give them everything and to make sure that they have what they need to grow up to be these, you know, healthy and happy adults. And so it is. It's really, it's extra work to try and figure out how to incorporate part of your culture that you don't have any knowledge of. Um, you know, like... My, <laughs> you know, yeah. I have two kids. I have two kids. They're both adults now. But, you know, like we've done the whole thing where we've tried, you know, I bought Korean um, flashcards. And the first time I came to Korea was in 2000. And I brought back a whole bunch of videos, these Korean cartoon videos for them. And they loved them. And they were, you know, oh. these little songs and little cartoon characters and stuff. <laughs> and yeah, but I mean, so they would sing along to them. And so they're singing along in Korean. 
but like didn't understand what any of it meant because I couldn't tell them what that meant. I yeah. couldn't translate for them, <laughs> you know. So it was really cute, and but they were so proud of it. They were proud that they were singing these songs in Korean, but yeah. like they didn't know what it meant, and I couldn't. I couldn't teach that to them either. I mean, we've done the flashcards, um, all those things. Um, the, one of the things that most of the parents talked about mm. was the easy to access things. Like I'm learning how to cook Korean, so I can have Korean as part of my family's regular meals. We're not going to have meatloaf and spaghetti, but we're also going to have, you know. <laughs> We're gonna, yeah. I'm going to make um, bibimbap, too. Mm-hmm. And so, like, they didn't want their kids to not know mm-hmm. how to eat Korean food. And so that was a big part of it. But, you know, I had some of the parents in my study who said, I don't really like Korean food. Like, you know, like, I don't really like kimchi, and it's bad, and I'm trying to like it because I want my kids <laughs> to like it. Right? You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's a lot of pressure. Yeah. That's I think, speaks, Ryan, to what you were saying about the work and the labor, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of emotional labor that goes in into it or thinking about like one parent wanted to send her kids to um, language classes but they didn't live in an area where it was easily accessible so then they talk about like how do you even find language schools or culture camps if you live in an area where that they don't have that you know I don't, I don't know what term you would use but it it also sounds like kind of like adoptee cultural transmission as well right? oh that for kind sure of, and and yeah. i'd be interested in hearing about whether an adoptee identity is also something that gets passed to children that's a really good question and we didn't really look at that um i'd be actually i'd be interested in going back and looking at that because um not all of the adoptees talked a lot about their adoption to their kids, but some did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like personally, I did. My kids knew from a very early age that I was adopted. They understood that I had, that they had Korean grandparents and relatives somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. over here in Korea that they might never know. Uh, we talked about we would go travel as a family someday when they got older so that they could see the country, you know, that they were a part of. Um, but not all adoptees did that, you know. My kids would say, and so, I'm, a, I'm just like a really big proponent, advocate of um, trying to give kids language really early on so that they can describe and talk about things because I feel like one of the things that I did not have when I was growing up is a language to talk about race um, or discrimination or in some ways adoption. So um, I wanted my kids to be able to talk about that because I wanted them to come to me if they had questions to ask me instead of asking other people who might give them bad information or wrong information. So in terms of adoption, because it's everywhere. So I was socializing my kids around adoption from the time they were really little. So like every Disney movie is basically about adoption or about a dead mom, right? So we would talk about it. We wow. would talk about these shows, I would say, yeah, so, you know, like, my kids loved the movie Annie. Uh, you know, that's Little Orphan Annie. Music, you know? Yeah, I grew up on it, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> right. So, Little Orphan Annie, right? And they would, you know, scrub the floors and sing It's a Hard Knock Life and, you know, like, all of these things. Like, they yeah. loved it. But we would talk about it. Like, you know, this is a fantasy. Like, yes, there are orphanages, but, like, most people never are going to be Annie. They're going to be, like, the other girls that are in the orphanage, and they're not going to have adoptive homes, and they're not necessarily going to go to rich families. And, you know, like, this is a story, and why do you, you know, why is it a story that we like to hear? Because we think that she gets these parents, right? Mm-hmm. And so complicating that is helpful because then my kids understand. So what's interesting is that they both ended up having friends who were adoptees. 
Oh, wow. oh. Yeah. And they understood adoption, right? Mm -hmm. So they weren't the ones asking those kids, who are your real parents, you know, who yeah. your real parents are, right? They knew better than to ask those questions. And they would tell me, oh, so-and-so is adopted. And I was like, oh, what country are they adopted from? Oh, they're adopted from China or, you know, whatever. And um, so... They understand wow, that, and that's, that's, and they that's can help. So important, and, and they can help like teach other people. Yeah, yeah. like that's not how adoption works, mm. right? I mean, it also helps because so many of my friends are adoptees, and so like right. at the dinner table, if we had friends come over, we would all talk about adoption, and we talk a lot about race. And so my kids yeah. actually just grew up hearing about adoption and hearing about transracial adoption and hearing about racism and. Like, and like deconstructing Disney movies. Everything. Yeah. I mean, right? Like our, 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 I had a potluck in Minneapolis with friends and most of us were adoptees and our partners and kids. And for like 12 years, all of our, all of us who had kids just grew up at the table listening to all of us talk about these things. Um, and we were really diverse in terms of, you know, like, uh, gender identity and sexual orientation and race and partners and all so I think it's an intentional community but I really wanted that for my kids um, but part of that's a reaction because I didn't have that growing up yeah. and so not all adoptees who have kids are also thinking about it in that way but some of them are some of those parents that I talk to are trying to be part of adoptee communities and their kids go to adoptee events and family events like picnics triple um, AW that I'm, I'm a part of has potlucks and picnics and it's family friendly so you know those kids are growing up knowing oh these are adoptees like my mom and or like my dad and um, yeah because it is it's it's intergenerational yeah I've heard this before, this theme that um, you hear from adoptees as parents that you relive your own adoption, like particularly um, when you, when your child like maybe gets to around the same age that you were adopted, I mean, which to, to be honest, it sounds really scary. Like, and I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about this, but is that something that, that you also had a personal experience? experience of and like is it I don't know is it just because I guess you're caring for this child that just like kind of reminds you of yourself and then you yeah so I can tell you some things that uh, like some personal things and then some things that I've heard other adoptees say so yeah so my kids um, especially with my daughter who was first born um, I was so I'm from the Daegu area mm -hmm. And I was found at about 14 months old. And then I was in two different orphanages. So I know the dates and I know the approximate timelines. I was not quite three when I was adopted by my family in Minnesota. So when my kids kind of hit some of those milestones, I was thinking about, you know, there's some transference, counter-transference that goes on there because I started thinking about, like, how would I, as a 14-month-old, when I see what my daughter's doing at 14 months old, she knows who I am. Yeah. Right? Like... If I leave the room, she's looking for me. If I come back, she arms out, right? Like, you see this yeah. every day. And so then I think, was I doing that? I must have been doing that. Who was I doing that to? Or, you know, so you, yeah. you can't kind of help. The other thing is, um, and because 
part of the adoption narrative is that we're blank slates. And so when we come to our adoptive families, no matter how old we are, it's like life starts now, the minute we enter their family. Mm. And um, clearly, though, we're not. (laughs) So, like, when my daughter was the age I was when I was adopted into my family, I was like, she's talking. She knows who we are. Like... I could see like her child development, what she was doing. She was starting to do imaginary play a little bit, right? Again, I'm like, if my child at this age was sent to a family in Korea, how traumatic would that have been for her? Thinking yeah. about like new language, new family system, new culture, um, all those things. And then I was just like, like that's when it really struck me. Yeah. Like here I was, you know, going into this family at like almost three years old. Mm. And, of course, I was like a little person then. You know, I had feelings and thoughts about who I was, whatever they were at that age, and it was it just, like, ended. And thinking about, like, my child going to another family or another culture at that point was tough to think about that. Like, I wouldn't want her to experience that loss. So that was definitely something that was brought up, I think, um, in the research. Yeah. Um the other thing that's kind of related to that, though, that I didn't talk about was pregnancy. So I've had, like, um, a lot of adoptees talk about um, the women being pregnant and having, if their adoptive moms um, did not have children by birth because of infertility issues or whatever, that it's a real struggle because their moms can't answer them uh, questions about being pregnant. Mm-hmm. So, like, when I was pregnant with my kids, my mom did have two, my parents had two other kids mm-hmm. by birth. And so, like, at least my mom could talk about what it was like to be pregnant and I, she could answer some of those questions. Mm-hmm. But, like, I've had adoptive friends whose moms didn't, and it was a real sense, um, it was a real time of tension because some have even said that their adoptive moms were jealous of them when they were pregnant. Because they were experiencing something that they weren't able to experience. So, like, these are, again, these conversations that we just don't have in our community enough. Um, Or we're having them, but they're not being brought out to the larger community. You know, so how do adoptees talk about what it's like to become a parent when their parents never, like, gave birth to a child? right yeah both mothers and fathers like whoever they are like it's it's significant it feels different i was just curious about like um if you have any other new research topics like in the pipeline or like on your mind or or whether you don't want to like yeah, <laughs> give away your research ideas. Um, well, I can tell you about a couple of studies I'm doing right now um, that are kind of tangential to adoption, but they're not about adult adoptees. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is I'm doing a research study with several other people looking at um, what kind of training adoption professionals get before they start doing their work. Uh, in adoptions, because most of them, in the at least in the focus groups we've been doing so far, most of them receive nothing. Um, so they learn on the job, and they don't learn in their social work or their psychology programs anything about adoption. Um, so oh, that's great! Yeah, so, again, like super practical. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, we want to, I want to encourage you know schools of social work to actually require classes. <laughs> <laughs> 
because so many people who do child welfare work, that's part of the work they do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm doing another one. Um, this is related to um, kind of rehoming and um, like my study on adopt adoption discontinuity. Um, so in the United States, there's um, this idea, there's this mechanism in child welfare called voluntary placement into foster care, and it's a way for parents who are looking for treatment for their kids, um, oftentimes related to mental health treatment, um, have the state temporarily take guardianship of their kid um, in order to get Medicaid to pay for their treatment at like a residential treatment center or uh, a hospital psychiatric program or something if their own insurance doesn't cover it. Um, and uh, some states have different laws around that. So sometimes what happens is the counties or the state social workers uh, because the idea is that it's voluntary, so you're you're temporarily giving custody over, but you're not relinquishing your parental rights. But some states may or may not kind of put pressure on you t to do that. Like, it's it's all fuzzy. There's no uniform law, basically. And so what anecdotally we hear is that um, adoptive parents tend to use this a lot more mm -hmm. than parents that are seeking this um, voluntary placement for their biologically born children and okay. so we're trying to understand that like yeah. why is that why might that be but if you if you listen to um, like public radio stories or sometimes you see newspaper articles about it usually it's around parents saying like I had to give up custody of my child in order to get them treatment oftentimes when you read those stories they involve adoptive families um, yeah, yeah. And so it's just, um, it's something we're trying to learn more about. We're trying to understand which states have these policies or guidelines around that, who can use them, and we're trying to understand what professionals do to help families who might come to them and say, we need voluntary placements. Um, the third part of that study, um, eventually we'll be talking to families who have used voluntary placements to better understand, you know, why. Um, and if they were feeling pressured to give up parental rights to their kid in order to get them treatment and you know we're never going to really know if it happens more in adoptive families versus um, non-adoptive families just because of the way our data is available to us but at least I want to better understand if if that's happening at all and what some of the reasons might be for it. Just before we wrap up, so because you've been involved in this community and like adoptee advocacy and research um, for a while now, I was wondering, I guess, like, do you sometimes like get burnt out and, and then if so, how do you kind of recharge and, and like how, I don't know, do you ever, do you ever just kind of feel like retiring from this work and <laughs> just, um, and how does like your inner, like, kind of fire or like drive that keeps you going like how is that is it as strong as ever or I mean it sounds like it I don't <laughs> I feel like it's as strong as ever um, I can't imagine not doing adoption related research um, I mean I started late so I mean it's not <laughs> I you know I I think back like wow what it would have been like if I was you know, did a study abroad program in Korea when I was in my un 
my original undergraduate program and if I had um, moved here and taught English or worked here for a while when I was still in my 20s before I started a family and all of that. So um, maybe I would have been more burnt out <laughs> if I had started then because um, I'm 50 now. But um, really, it, it it hasn't. I think it's also changed, you know. Um, so the type of work that I do changes over time and that keeps me interested. So I'm now doing more research and policy related stuff, but before it was more community involvement. Um, but I like to stay involved in the community things because even though that's the part where I sometimes get more burnt out, not the research part, the community, because you know, communities, like all communities, there's sometimes dramas and there's different ways of thinking about things and you know, it can be a lot. Um, but I feel like I don't want to do research that isn't meaningful from the community standpoint. So I really feel like I, um, if I'm going to do ethical research, I have to maintain my um, part in the community. Um, mm -hmm. Because I don't want to be, again, like what a lot of researchers are who think that they're super objective. I don't want to be like, I know what the adopted community should be concerned about and mm -hmm. I'm going to do a study on. No, it's like going to these gatherings and doing other social things with other adoptees, it's like I'm always looking for feedback. I always want to know, does my research um, sound resonant to you or are there things yeah. that you think I really missed? Because if there are things that you think I missed, like, do you think that's something we should explore more? Um, should there be other studies? Because as I said in the symposium too, adoptees are kind of over-researched sometimes and I don't want to do research that they're like roll their eyes oh another one like this I, it should be meaningful it should be something that um, looks at adoptees in a different fresh way yeah. not something that just has been done over and over and over again I was really struck by your discussion of ethics at the research symposium and um, I really I mean, you were the keynote, and you know, like setting the example, and I think um, those are really, really, really important points that you made, and I want to thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. welcome. For yeah, we, and for like um, giving us your time during this like little trip. I'm sure incredibly busy. You've you've been very busy. Yeah, yo, yeah. Thank you. I'm super honored that you asked me. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Adopted Feels. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Plus, we have a Patreon. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to patreon.com forward slash Adopted Feels. That's Patreon as in P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks I, so much. I feel like actually this is all like... <laughs> meant to be that, that I because I, I didn't actually realize I'd found your blog I think years ago and yeah and then when um, I saw that you were doing the keynote I didn't realize that like yeah you were the same person as <laughs> blog and a lot then, of people don't yeah. <laughs> yeah oh I have one more thing I was yeah. supposed to mention to you when you were asking about the burnout mm. um, I like to bake and oh, cook really? and I hear you're a baker oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like to bake too. I was gonna say this is like totally not relevant, but you know how you said one participant doesn't really like kimchi. I was like, they should fry it in butter and put it on like a grilled cheese sandwich. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> there you go. Some oh. words of advice. Yeah. <laughs>